0: Last week was the first Sunday of the month, and usually what I do is I share my heart, soul, mind, strength, discipleship kind of areas of focus, but I wanted to keep my sermon last week to under an hour, so I cut it and pushed it to here, and I did. It was 59 minutes and 34 seconds, so I kept it under an hour. You're welcome. So I'm going to share with you, and and the reason why I'm doing this isn't, in a sense, to to brag. I could see how it could be... um, Construed that way, this is really me kind of sharing with you areas that God is challenging me with. See, I have a big vision for discipleship. You ask a hundred people, "What does it mean to be a Christian?" You're going to get quite a array of answers. The word that I like to ground my understanding of what it be what it means to be a Christian in Christian is is the word disciple. And disciple is kind of a New Testament word that means a student or learner, but not just from an educational sense that I show up to class and I get information and okay, I get it and I fill out a test. A disciple is someone who is trying to pattern their life off of someone else. So it's a little bit more like a mentorship, but it's a little bit more intense than that. A disciple of Jesus, which I think is a really important way to think about what it means to call yourself a Christian, is someone who, as best as they know how, that they're walking in the light that they've been given, they don't know everything, but they're learning how to follow Jesus and how to imitate his character and his practice in every sphere of life not just on Sunday morning, not just in Christian enclaves, not just when it works for them, but in every area, mountains and valleys, school at home, recreation with their finances, with their bodies, um, how they spend their time, they're always asking the question, how do I honor Jesus in and through this? Now, that can be a big vision, and that can be intimidating to people. Go and live for Jesus, be a disciple, and we're like, yes, I want to, but... I don't know how to put handles on that. Like, what does that look like? And so what I do is I break down the the most important commandment Jesus said was given to man. Love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. He said every other command kinda hangs on those ones. That's that's the top of the pyramid in terms of priority from God's point of view. And I just take those areas, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I use it as a quadrant, and every month I just spend time reflecting and praying and saying, God, Where's an area that you're challenging me that, what's something that I can do practically? Maybe there's a theme for the month. How, do, how, how can I be growing and challenging myself to follow you, like we sang in that song, out into the waters, out into uncharted territory? And in the area of heart, I just think through relationships. Soul is about my own prayer life and worship life, interiority, maybe unconfessed sin, but in interior life, mind. Theology, learning more about the Bible, about who God is, who God has revealed himself to be, and strength serving. And so this month, this is what my focus is on, heart and relationships. I'm reading through and applying the lessons that I'm learning from Andy Crouch's The Tech Wise Family, which is his reflections on 10 practices that he believes uh, anybody can learn from, but it's maybe especially important for families with young children, teenagers in the home, on how to practice on how to use technology in a way that doesn't overwhelm the, the the family culture and the home culture. In the area of soul, my prayer theme is wisdom and courage. I'm just kind of praying through those lenses in my own life. God, I want you to give me wisdom and courage. I want you to give wisdom and courage in my marriage, in my relationship with my kids, in my vocation. In the area of mind, I'm uh, not uh, next week, not this upcoming week, but we, the week after, I'm going to Minnesota to take a an intensive Theology of the Covenant course at Bethel University as part of my orientation into the Covenant. So that's going to cover a lot of ground in terms of theological formation. Specifically, what make what are some of the theological distinctives within the Covenant? And then strength. I actually did that yesterday. I prioritized making sure that uh, I could come with at least one of my kids, even though it was soccer Saturday, to squeeze in some time cleaning, part of church cleanup day. And uh, that's an area of serving that I certainly value but doesn't come naturally to me and so Brayden and I just went upstairs yesterday and cleaned most of the nursery all the toys by hand and that was a good experience for him good experience for me and uh, that's important and the reason why I break that up into four areas is because I know my own heart and there's just certain ways of serving God that come easier to me and more naturally and I'll just gravitate towards it and other areas that I'm like yeah, that, that's kind of for other people. And I love that Jesus' command is that, Jeff, you're called to learn to love me with every part of who you are. And some of those ways are going to be easier for you, and some of those things are going to be harder. But you don't just outsource the harder ones to other people. Learn to experience God by loving him with all of your strength, by getting down in the nooks and crannies of those nursery toys, and to be able to talk with Braden about this is what it means to love the little people in our church make sure they're not sick and they have a great time and they're safe. And so I encourage you, if you don't do so already, you don't have to use heart, soul, mind, and strength. I just use it because it's kind of simple and easy to remember. But challenge yourself at the start of every month or maybe a few times a year to allow God to put on you certain goals, certain ambitions, certain themes that you want to press into. Maybe it's reading through a particular book of the Bible and going really deep there. Maybe it's just trying to Maybe you're at a really inconsistent place with your prayer life and devotions you're gonna, and you're going to aim to do a devotion or, um, and a time of prayer every other day. Because right now, other than Sunday, nothing's happening at all. But look for a way to grow in your relationships, in your prayer life, in your understanding of God's word, and, pr- and practically serving other people. Okay, now we are on the cusp of a new series and it is going to be through the book of Ephesians, as your bulletin points out. But I want to say a few things before we move into the book. We're actually not going to get into the book at all today. I want to set the context for the book, which will make the book much richer. But before we even set the context, I want to say a few things about what's important to us as a church. This is important to say consistently, and especially as we stop one series, the Gospel of Mark, and move into another one, Ephesians. It's a really good time to either remind people who are established here or introduce to people who are new, some of our priorities as a church. So what's our theological vision as a church? Well, my heart is to become a church where we are part of a cultivating a gospel ecosystem in the city of Nelson, where we are introducing people to Jesus and then inviting them to move into their areas of gifting. And instead of having a precise vision of, oh, that's gonna look like this and Jeff has this blueprint five-year plan we're simply being faithful teaching people to abide in Jesus nurturing them spiritually and then we do believe and in our ministerium the other uh, pastors in this area we believe that if that happens there's going to be all kinds of creative expressions of the gospel that will be far better than if all the pastors in Nelson got together and say hmm what's our big 10 year plan and relied on our own wisdom so we want to introduce people to Jesus and release them into their gifts so that in all kinds of creative ways, we are seeing people connected to Jesus, being blessed by the church, blessed by other Christians. The values that guide us as a church are the covenant affirmations. We affirm the centrality of the word of God. We affirm the necessity of a new birth. We affirm a commitment to the whole mission of the church. We affirm the church as a fellowship of believers, it's not a social club. We affirm a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. And we affirm the reality of freedom in Christ. People amongst us are going to do things differently. That's totally great. God's going to use our diversity to reach the world for Jesus. And then we have a few emphases that if you stick around long enough, you're going to kind of hear, come up again and again. Number one is the word gospel or an emphasis on gospel-centered ministry. We want to make sure that everything that we're doing is through the lens of the central proclamation of the Bible, which is that God has come to rescue his people, died as an atoning sacrifice for their sins, and has been raised to new life and ushered in new creation. Given that those parameters and that good news story, how now should we live? That's the lens through which we see each other, our roles in the world, our calling as disciples. And discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, growing as a disciple of Jesus, is another one of those emphases that we're gonna talk about. Uh, I don't want to be part of a church culture where following Jesus is seen as something that is kind of um, disorganized, not really focused, optional. I want us to be growing and passionate followership of Jesus. and and Part of what's going to help us to do that is to continually live into Christ's mission. Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And so that's kind of the umbrella call for the church, is to go in to make disciples, introduce people to Jesus, but not simply just convert them. Oh, now they're saved and now we just move on. We teach them to obey everything that Jesus said. We live into God's priority to bring his blessing and love and grace to bear on a world that increasingly doesn't see much hope and even though that vision is very big and we say okay I want to do that but what does that look like in my life I'm a young adult single I'm a junior high student I'm um, empty nester I'm in the midst of corralling a whole group of children that big vision what does it mean to make disciples I'm not sure how to step into Jesus's mission this is where I think the covenants acronym bless is incredibly helpful because it gives us everybody in this room a template through which they can enter into the mission of God the Covenant uses the acronym Bless to describe to describe five practices that are directly tied to fulfilling Jesus's mission to bring his good news to the world and make disciples B stands for beginning with prayer we pray for our friends and family, neighbors, co-workers who are far from God. We learn to listen with care. We really understand where they're coming from. We don't make presumptions about people. We show them that we are a space and a trusted safe space to hear the story of their lives. We eat together. Walls come down when you eat with people, even just over a coffee. And so we do what Jesus did, which is to eat with tax collectors and sinners, not because we're different than than them, but because that's what we once were outside of Jesus. We were people who were lost and hungry and hurting for hope. We serve with love. We look for ways intentionally. We don't just go for a week and think, How does everything working for me? And we're not self centered. We're looking outwards on our sports teams, in our classrooms, in our family, and saying, How can I serve in big or small ways in love? And then we share our story. We talk about what we're learning in our faith. Sometimes that's really exciting. Sometimes it's puzzling. Sometimes it's heartbreaking. Sometimes it's just uh, intellectually really, really challenging and we're we're working through things. Sometimes it's it's through a a, a prism of doubt and we're we're seeking the truth. But we're sharing that journey with other people so that they see that we are people who are really wrestling with God and our relationship with God is real and it's substantial. And we're serious about it. And we're serious about applying it to all of life. But underneath all of that wrestling with God is this great hope that we have that we have been secured and saved and redeemed in Jesus. And in sharing our story, authentically, genuinely, not pushing it on people, but from a space of trust, often when they're asking us to explain, why do you live with this hope? Why are you so full of energy? Why do you care about these things? We begin to share our story of what God has done in our lives. And as we bless people, Individually, as families, as a church, as we bless people through these mechanisms, God does powerful, powerful things. So that's what we're trying to do as a church. That's what we're focused on. That's the direction that we're moving towards. Now, we are going to be looking at the book of Ephesians over the next several months. It might take over a year to get through the book, depending on how quickly we move through it. But I thought it's also really important today to get a context for where the book is just as it relates to the biblical story. Because I didn't have someone actually walk me through the story of the Bible in a timeline fashion such that I could understand it until I was in kind of my early mid-twenties probably. They didn't even actually do this at seminary. They had you study the Bible study certain books but you're kind of moving in and out and I didn't have anybody that kinda of said here is the timeline here's what's happening here's the story and here's where all the other pieces fit and that's very very important to know when you're reading a book in the Bible it's important to know is what I'm reading happened before Jesus or after Jesus um, where in the story is this taking place if I were to pop in the Lord of the Rings trilogy and just start on the 18th chapter of the Return of the King DVD, I could probably pick up some stuff. I, okay, okay, there's uh, these two little hobbit people and they're going to a place called Mordor and, okay, that's, that's a bad place and I think they're doing something heroic and all these other things are happening and there's an army of the dead. Okay, and there's these people. But you'd clearly pick up very quickly that there's a backstory. Now, Do you need all of that backstory in order to enjoy the rest of the movie? No, there's probably some stuff you could pick up and be like, that's really awesome. But if you know the whole story, then there is a depth to every scene, every line of dialogue. There's things that are alluded to in the first movie that come to completion in the third that you're like, oh, that was an amazing payoff that they set up hours before. And the Bible's kind of like that. You can start in the Gospels, you can start with the life of Jesus. We could jump right into Ephesians, and we could learn a lot from it. But if we understand the story and the context of Ephesians, it's going to be that much more meaningful. So what I want to do, just over the next few minutes, is share with you the biblical story, which the Bible says is this is the grand story of reality of which your story is a part. You actually won't even be able to make sense of your story as an individual unless you understand this meta-story. So here we go. The Bible in six acts, and you can think about it, three acts in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament. Most movies have a three-act structure. Old Testament has three, New Testament has three. Act one, Old Testament, God establishes his kingdom. That's a creation story. Genesis one, and two, Just the first two chapters of the Bible, God establishes his kingdom. Everything we read about in those chapters is about a good God forming a good world and creating a humanity, male and female, to rule as kind of image-bearing regents over the creation and to bring about its potential. Genesis tells how God is a creator above everything else. He's not part of creation. He creates all that is. And we get a glimpse of how good the world was intended to be. And how good our role and how important our role within the world is as male and female image bearers. That's act number one. Act number two, rebellion in the kingdom. This is sometimes referred to as the fall. And this happens over maybe the next few chapters in Genesis from 3 to 11. Created to rule and reign under the authority of God humanity says "Eh, thanks but no thanks and they listen to a serpent this great enemy of God the devil who says did God really say to not eat from the fruit of that tree are you sure you heard him right are you sure that's what his intent are you sure his intention is to bless you I have different information see I know something you don't know and that is God is keeping you from something good And if you eat the fruit of that tree, you won't die, like God said. You will become more alive alive than you ever have before. You will become like God. So the great enemy of God invites Adam and Eve to, to spiritual autonomy. You don't need God. You can live life on your terms. God says, this is good, this is evil. Well, but what's good and evil for you? You get to decide that. Eat that fruit take control of your spiritual life and once that happens the next several chapters in the bible show a corruption that happens in the human heart because of sin which is rebellion treason against god idolatry shoving god off the throne and putting ourselves on the throne and saying i'm going to be god thank you very much i'm going to be lord and the results are catastrophic we see the world plunge into greater and greater darkness as the story goes on um, within families within cities within nation-states things just go from bad to worse it gets so bad at one point that God has to say he, he's grieved and he says that I make a mistake here he God is grieved at the state of the world and so he brings judgment saves Noah's family but obliterates the world in a flood this act of judgment but it does not come from a place of anger it actually comes from a place of brokenheartedness and the world is such a hellhole that God says it actually would be better to just do a hard reset. And that even after that, even within Noah's family, this corruption of sin just keeps um, unfolding. But God is a God who redeems. and That brings us to Act 3. God, the king, chooses Israel. He says, I'm gonna choose a people. I'm gonna, I'm gonna rescue this fallen humanity. God makes a covenant with a man named Abram who later becomes Abraham and he makes a covenant with him and he says Abram I'm gonna make you a father of a great nation I'm gonna give you land you're gonna have a special relationship with me I'm gonna give you a nation I'm gonna make you into a nation all your descendants are gonna become this great nation and through this nation all the other nations of the earth are gonna be blessed I'm gonna bless you to be a blessing so God goes on this massive rescue operation but he starts very very small with a little family from the middle of nowhere, and he calls them to great things. And really, the rest of the Old Testament is the playing out of that call. So when you get through Genesis, you're looking at the patriarchs, Abraham, and then his son, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and you're seeing how God chose these people, clearly did not choose them because they're so righteous and amazing. They are self-centered and broken and murderous and in all kinds of ways, not proper image bearers, but God stays true to his covenant and he is rescuing and redeeming uh, his people. Then as Exodus opens up, the second book of the Bible, Israelites have just exploded in population. They're a huge uh, group of people, but there are slaves in Egypt. And God hears their cry and he sends a deliverer and the book of Exodus is about how God rescues them in powerful ways and leads them out of Egypt. And that is the watershed moment in the Old Testament. That is the moment that every Bible-believing Old Testament Jew says that is the turning point in our history. God rescued us, not because we were so great, but because of his greatness and his righteousness. He was faithful to the promise that he gave to Abraham. He's gonna save the world, he's gonna do it through us. And he took us from this ragtag group of slaves and invited us to be a nation. And we exited Egypt by the Lord's righteous right hand. And then God brings them to Mount Sinai out in the wilderness as people and he gives them his law. Why, because he wants to make them into a nation. A nation needs laws. And those people didn't say, are you serious God, like laws? Ooh, we wanna do whatever we want. I mean, some of them did, but they received the law as a gift. They were like, wow, what other nation has their laws given to them directly from the finger of God? What a privilege. And these laws showed them how to structure their life so that the other nations would be attracted to them and say, wow, what do you guys have that we don't? And they could say, we have the true living God. We aren't making this stuff up from the ground up. It's from heaven down. God gives them a tabernacle where he says, I'm going to dwell with my people. There's lots of rules connected to it. And that's the book of Leviticus. They're still by the mountain. And God says, I'm a holy God. You can't get too close or I'm going to obliterate you because you're sinful but we can set up some parameters, some rituals, some sacrifices so that you can get proximally near to me and I can live among you without destroying you because I want to have a relationship with you, but your sin and your hard-heartedness is getting in the way. And the book of Numbers is about God taking them out and saying, now we are going to go into the promised land. I'm going to give you your own land. But then God's people are kind of like, eh. a lot of them are like, I don't think, I mean, I'm not trusting you, God. And they have some hesitations, and God says, okay, we're going to let you guys wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation dies off, and a new generation is actually going to listen to me and trust me. Forty years go by. Deuteronomy is what uh, kind of a second giving of the law that was revealed in, um, in Leviticus comes back again in Deuteronomy. It's kind of like a pep talk before they go into the land. It's basically Moses saying to that next generation, don't be like your parents' generation. Don't do what they did. Actually listen to God. Here are the rules again. We're just going to recap so everyone's on the same page. This is what we need to do in order for God to bless us and give us this land. And then, in quick order, Joshua is about them going into the land and overtaking their their enemies by the power of God. Then they get established in the land, and they set up judges, which are kind of like supreme military political commanders, not like a, just a courtroom judge, but they were kind of like the top of the, they didn't have kings at that time, they had judges in Israel. But it was really bad because they were in the land and they kind of borrowed from pagan cultures around them and they were like, yeah, we believe in God, but we also believe in Baal and all these kinds of things seem pretty powerful too and this is neat. And they kind of, what the Bible says, they prostituted themselves out to other gods. God wanted a relationship based on fidelity and, and, and God said, I'm a jealous God, I want you all to myself. And they said, eh, yeah, us not so much. Like, we want you, God, but we want other people too. And then they move into these cycles of sin over and over and over again. The people cry out to God. They get rescued. Things are good for a while. Then they start saying, we actually don't really need God to live. Like, we're, we're pretty good on our own. Then they fall into sin. Then they cry out to God, and God rescues them. And that happens kind of like six times over the course of the book of Judges. It's a really good book to study if you find yourself caught in cycles of addiction, idolatry, patterns. Look, um, st- study that book. Really, really quite interesting. Then a question arises, how do we get out of these cycles? This is just the same thing happening again and again and again. There's no progress happening. Wasn't God supposed to do something powerful for our nation? We kind of barely remember. God Is God our God? What's going on? What's going to break the cycle? Do we need a king like the other nations around us? And a lot of Israel said, yeah, I think we do. I think we need a king. That's, that's the missing thing. And God says, well, I'm actually supposed to be your king. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we get that. But we mean like a real king, like one on a throne, like the other nations have. Because they look at us and they're like, you guys are weird. You don't really have a king. So we would kind of like to bow to the peer pressure and be like, yeah, we have a king. We have a super awesome human king just like you guys. God says, be careful what you wish for because that's going to bring a lot of heartache into your life. They're like, eh, okay, we'll, we'll take that advice. But, you know, we still want the king. So 1st and 2nd Samuel are the stories of the initial kings of Israel, Saul, David, um, and then, um, yeah, Saul and David. And then 1st King moves into Solomon's reign, the son of David. And then the civil war that breaks out in Israel, and they start fighting, and they they split Israel and Judah. 2nd Kings kind of focuses mostly on the, each each, uh, sub-nation has its own king, and almost all those kings are, pretty idolatrous and and foolish, and you read those stories and you realize, wow, this isn't much different than the book of Judges. Like, they're still wallowing in sin. They're not following God. And, you know, part of what comes up in the biblical story is, like, is God going to wash his hands of these people? Like, is God just going to get fed up? He's promised that he's going to do something. He's made a covenant with them, but, wow, they are just hitting a wall again and again and again. Is, Is God's patience... Can it be exhausted? Is God going to get to a place where he's like, I'm walking away from this. I'm just completely cutting ties and walking away. First and Second Chronicles is kind of an executive summary of God's covenant with David. It's kind of a bit of a condensed do-over of some of the stories that you find in First and Second Samuel. And then what happens is, or sorry, 2 Kings ends on a really important note. I, I should note this. 2 Kings ends in exile, where God has said, I am not going to give up on my covenant, but I'm going to allow a major capital J judgment to come upon Israel. And The Babylonians come in, they destroy Solomon's temple which was built, raise it to the ground, then they take a lot of the prominent Jewish community back to Babylon in what's called the exile. They get exiled out of the land and they're there for many, 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 many decades and they're heartbroken and they're like, wow, this is the judgment of God. And then the question during the exile becomes, are we ever going to be allowed back? Or is this like a permanent judgment where God was like, I gave this gift to you. You snubbed your nose at it. Okay, you're gone. I'll kick you out. I'll give it to someone else. Ezra picks up where the Persians take over the Babylonians. And Cyrus says, people who were removed from the exile, you're allowed to come back. And not everybody, but a lot of the Jews do. And they're like, yeah, this is amazing. God's redeeming us. We can go back. And and then what they do is they begin rebuilding the temple. They make a second temple. It's smaller. It's not as glorious as the first one. And then Nehemiah, which is the next part of the story. So Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of A and B. Ezra rebuilds the temple. And Nehemiah rebuilds the wall around the city. And there's this real hope of restoration. God's restoring us. It's not quite what we hope. We're still under foreign pagan rule, but is way better than exile. We can clearly see that God is inviting us back into some kind of relationship with himself. He's allowed the temple to be rebuilt. We can continue with sacrifices. And then Esther is this heroic story of someone who stayed in Babylon and how God uses that person for his purposes to save the Jewish people. So the kind of the biblical story ends with some rebuilding happening down in Uh, Israel, and then some heroics and God using um, Esther in the, the Persian kingdom. Now, that's the entire Old Testament story. And you'll notice, I haven't talked about books like Psalms, Proverbs. I haven't mentioned any of the prophets. And that's because all those other books, if you go to your Bible, let's see here. Here's Ezra. Here's the whole Old Testament. And this is what I just talked through. Less than half. So you can read the first 17 books of the Bible. That's the entire Old Testament story. The other books are the extended edition scenes of the DVD or the Blu-ray. Right? Right? These will tell you the basic plot line. These other books are prophets that came along towards the end of the timeline. A lot of the Psalms are written by David, so that happens in, you know, books of Samuel. But they just flesh out the story more. They don't add anything more to the timeline, they just make you understand it better. So if you're intimidated about reading the biblical, reading through the Old Testament, you only have to read through about 40% of it to get the overarching story. So that's where the Old Testament story ends. New Testament story is even shorter. You could theoretically take one of the synoptic gospels, then read the book of Acts, and you'd be done in terms of the timeline. But getting ahead of myself. New Testament, 400 years later, and during that time, the Jews are wondering and trying to piece together, okay, we're back in the land, but we're under foreign rule. We want God to be our king. God made this covenant. It doesn't seem to have been fulfilled. When is the kingdom of God gonna come? The kingdom of God was a catchphrase that meant when God rules and reigns and saves us out of sin, makes us a blessing, to be a blessing to the nation, God fixes everything. When do we get to live under the rule and reign of God? Because right now we're under the rule and reign of, we're under the rule and reign of Babylon, then Persia, then the Greeks, now the Romans. And there were four groups that sprung up during that time. You won't read about them in the Old Testament because they happen in between the intertestamental period, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They were the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, four groups of Jews who had a different idea of what the solution to that problem was. When's the kingdom of God gonna come? How are we gonna trigger it? What do we need to do to show God that we're serious about this God? And the Pharisees said, we have to get right back to the Bible. Every jot and tittle, we need to obey it faithfully. Then God will come and save us. The, um, The Essenes said, the world is too corrupt. We need to withdraw from this pagan, uh, sin-soaked world. We're just gonna go out into the wilderness, make our own kind of holy huddle, and wait for God to judge the temple, judge any of our uh, Jewish brothers and sisters who aren't fully pure and clean before God. And then when God does that, then we can move back in. But we're gonna kind of move out of the way. God's gonna spiritually nuke Rome and unfaithful Israelites, and then we can move back in, and we'll just wait for that to happen. The Sadducees say, you know what? we have kind of worked out an agreement where we benefit a lot from Rome. They allow us to operate as temple priests. We make a lot of money. So we're not really interested in the kingdom of God coming, if what you mean by that is overthrowing Rome, because they provide a pretty handsome paycheck. So the Sadducees are kind of like, let's just not talk too much about kingdom of God. Let's just talk about how what a blessing it is to work with the Romans, because they, they keep us alive, and we have the temple, and yeah, like there's a little bit of idolatry thrown in, and we might have lost our way, but like, I've got a pretty good gig. Then the zealot said the only way the kingdom of God is going to come. The only way is if we kill our enemies. We're going to show God that we really have he has our allegiance because we're going to slit the throats of our enemies. And they were people who uh, in those uh, preceding decades before Jesus arrives in the scene pushed a lot of that agenda. But act four in the biblical story is the coming of the king. Jesus arrives in the scene, a descendant of David, traced all the way back to Abraham. He's connected to this covenant, this covenant of rescue and redemption. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. And as he talks about the kingdom of God, everybody's ears perk up because they're like, whoa, is this guy the answer to this puzzle that we've been trying to piece together? He's preaching about love for enemies. He's announcing good news that God has come to restore creation, but he's also doing things. He's not just saying that. He's not just telling about the kingdom, he's showing telling the kingdom by doing some miracles, by healing people, by bringing sight to the blind that lines up with some of these prophecies in the Old Testament. And maybe most controversially, he's declaring people to be forgiven of their sins, which is something that you could only be assured of if you went to the temple, because the temple had the sacrifices through which you could be atoned, your sin could be atoned for. But Jesus is just doing it. He's just declaring that your sins have been forgiven. Which raises the question, which the first century Jewish leaders asked, wait, who can forgive sins but God alone? No, prophets don't get to forgive sins. Only God can do that. And Jesus is like, yeah. He's leading people to the conclusion, that he is this Messiah, he is an anointed one, but different in kind than David, a greater king. And as his ministry unfolds, what becomes clear to us, the reader, is that he is the world's true king, the second person of the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, come to earth, incarnating, God himself coming in human form to rescue and redeem and to be the king that Israel needs so that he can become the king that the world needs. Now, the story of Jesus seems to end on a cross. I guess he's not the king, but then three days later, he's alive. He's resurrected with a new body, new power. He's been vindicated. God the Father said, this is my son, listen to him. And now, Jesus says, this news, this gospel, this good news announcement of what God has done, I want you to go and share it with the world and make people who are disciples within this good news story that this story becomes the framing story for their whole life. This is how they understand their identity. And they understand that I am the world's true king, and they're learning to live in allegiance to me. Acts chapter 5 is the spreading of the news of the king, and this is the the book of Acts. And this is the story of how the gospel goes out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Missionaries, the apostles go out, they establish churches, more and more people become Christians. There's lots of... um, Tension and persecution and imprisonment, and and it's this uh, really fast-paced story. The book of Acts takes place over 30 years from start to finish, from the ascension to Acts 28. That's a 30-year time period. That's also important when you read Acts to to note that because when you read Acts, everything happens so fast, you're like, well, this was amazing. God was on the move all the time. I wish it was like that today. And you're like, "Uh, no, that was over a 30-year period. And often the text doesn't explicitly say Three years went by and people were doing regular church and then this happened. It just conflates everything to the highlight reel and we're like, that's amazing, right? It would be like watching Sports Center, and the 45 second highlight of the game from the night before and being like, this was amazing. And then you show up to a regular basketball game and you're like, like it happens once in a while, but like this is like two hours of a lot of like seemingly dead space. Yeah, because you don't take the highlight reel and use it as a lens through which to see your everyday life, but we can do that with Acts, but we shouldn't because it's a long period of time where the gospel spreads over three decades and we get to be a part of that story. And then Acts 6, the return of the king. The last two chapters of Revelation go back and do move from symbolism and talking about um, promises given to the early church to very concretely the return of the king. Jesus ascended to heaven In Acts, he will return again to fully consummate the kingdom, fully establish it. It has begun here. It is now, but it's not fully here. God's rule has started, but it hasn't been cemented. But in Acts 19, 20, 21, we see the return of the king. Jesus returns. He brings and installs the kingdom of God in its fullness, capital K, kingdom of God, fully restoring a sin-cursed world, And he destroys sin and evil and the enemies of God in a final judgment. And the heaven and earth, new heavens and new earth now become one and every redeemed image bearer gets to set off into eternity to rule and reign this new heavens and new earth with Jesus as their king. And they get to continue to to develop the good elements of creation, continue to unpack the cosmos and its potential. But now completely free from the shackles and curse of sin in a cosmic environment that is suffused with the glory of God. So God will ultimately redeem the story and then have it continue forever in the ultimate happily ever after. That is, in six acts, a very basic way to understand the biblical story. Now where does the book of Ephesians fall in that context? It's important for you to know The book of Ephesians occurs during Act 5, the spreading of the Good News. All this preamble has happened in the Old Testament. Jesus has come, Jesus has left, and actually Ephesians gets written concurrent with Acts chapter 28 when Paul's imprisoned in Rome. At the very last chapter of Acts, Paul is in his late 50's, he's been a Christian for almost 30 years, He's been on three missionary journeys. On his second journey, he arrived in Ephesus and stayed for a little bit, but had to leave quickly. Then, on his third missionary journey, which I'll talk more about in a few weeks, he goes back to Ephesus, stays there for two years, and runs an intensive church-planting discipleship training school that helps uh, send missionaries to a lot of the rural part of Asia. Then to make a long story short, goes to some other places, gets imprisoned, late About I think it's about eight years later, gets imprisoned under house arrest in Rome. He writes four books, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemons, and then a year later, Philippians, called the Prison Epistles, which means prison letters, that are written during the final years of his life. So this is coming from Paul after he's seen a lot of life, and he's been through a lot. And he's writing to a place that he's invested in heavily a number of years ago, And Paul is seeing this whole grand narrative of Scripture play out, and most of the Ephesians are not people who grew up in the church. They were people who came to Jesus as Gentiles, and they had to learn this story, and they were like, "Whoa, this Old Testament is super confusing. What are we supposed to? How are we supposed to know this?" And these six chapters in Ephesians are designed to be a quick study for them on what God has done for you, who you are in Christ, and then what does it mean to live out of that identity? So it's this amazing book that plays with these themes of identity and power or belief and practice or or worldview and behavior. He spends the first three chapters essentially saying, this is what God has done, this is who you are, Then the next three, he basically says, now become who you are. Live into your identity. You think of yourself like this, but that's not true. This is who you are, so live into this vision. And it gets really practical and touches on areas like sexuality, parenting, marriage, uh, relations within the church, friendships, how we act and operate within the world in our everyday lives. It's an amazing book that gives a high-level vision And then practical action, but it comes at this critical point in Paul's life where he has seen a lot of life and the Holy Spirit inspires him and he writes this letter from prison and says, this is gonna be my final, in one sense, um, Hail Mary's not the right metaphor, but it's, it's a final push, a final encouragement to the church in Ephesus and in the surrounding area to be faithful to King Jesus. I don't know how much time I have left, but I'm going to write one more letter to the Ephesians. It's an amazing, amazing book. It has rich, life-transforming theology that touches a huge host of topics within its short chapters. This is what I want you to do to get ready. This is your homework for two weeks from now. Number one, I want you to read through the book of Ephesians. It takes between 20 and 25 minutes. And I recommend to read it all the way through and to have some of this timeline in mind. Paul at the end of his journey, Acts chapter eight. Sorry, Acts chapter 28. You can read about the imprisonment there. This is the context. Read Ephesians knowing this is Paul after 30 years of ministry. And all he's seen, this is what he's writing. Read Ephesians. If you read it several times over the next few weeks, that would be awesome. Just do a deep dive, just read it, read it again and again and again and again and again. I'll send out a link tomorrow for two resources that I would really encourage you to to, to move into. Number one, a short eight-minute video on Ephesians by The Bible Project, which will give you an overview of the book at a pretty high level. Really, really helpful, engaging. It'll help demystify a bunch of things and help you move into the book in a more meaningful way. And then number two, If you are interested in this, oh, that Bible story thing, like, yeah, I don't really know much about that. I still have books and I'm confused how it all fits together, but that was helpful. Uh, We have access to a course called Clarifying the Bible, which from start to finish takes about an hour and 35 minutes, not very long, but a really, really excellent teacher named uh, Mitch Mayer, I think, um, has created a course called Clarifying the Bible, which provides an overview of the Bible, then an overview of the Old Testament, Overview of the New Testament. A little bit more in-depth than here. Shows you where all the books are and really, really helpful. Fairly fast-paced. Completely designed for someone who's like, I have never really even read the Bible. I don't even know where to begin or what to think about it. It's not a seminary-level course. It's for the average person who is either new to faith or investigating faith or has been in the church a long time. But if you ask them, can you just start in Genesis and just kind of just explain the biblical story, I'll tell you when to stop. You're like, uh, no, I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> um, watch watch those series of videos. They're broken up so that most videos are like 15 to 20 minutes long so you can watch one or two a day. But that those are awesome resources and those will come out to you tomorrow via email. Next week we're gonna have uh, Anna Wardle sharing with us some of the things that she has learned from a recent course that she's taken. And then the following week, we will move into Ephesians in earnest. But let's do so today with a commitment to do that on our own, in our marriages, in our families, to begin reading through this book and just kind of digging into it and allowing God to begin preparing our hearts for it. Let's pray. God, this story that we're a part of is an amazing story. And as we move into Ephesians, Ephesians can only be understood within this grand story. And I pray that as we move into this book that... um, we would find our place in the story. That maybe for many people here who are wrestling with issues of identity, issues of purpose, needing clarity on certain things as it relates to their faith, maybe just wrestling through all kinds of religious and spiritual questions aren't really sure where they stand, that through this book, they would gain clarity on who you are, the promise that is available in you alone, and God, that this grand story of Scripture would capture our hearts. And that we would see it as the unfolding story of the world's true king. We would yield our lives more and more to that king. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to be a part of a church that values that. And we just pray and ask for your blessing as we move into this book in Jesus' name. Amen.